Okay, Acts 15, 12 through 18 today. Let's pray. I'll pray from uh, Psalm 65 today. Praise to you is due, O God, in Zion, and to you shall uh, flows vows uh, and be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength establishes the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts 15, 12 through 18. Remember, this is the Jerusalem Council uh, meeting to settle the question of whether the, the Gentile converts need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Acts 15, 12 through 18. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through, through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Amen. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, believe it or not, we've been here over five years now. You've put up with me for that long. Thank you. Uh, you've heard me preach enough to know that I'm very interested and excited about ecclesiology, about the church. I think at one time I was, as most American Christians are, I believe Christianity was about me, uh, about my relationship with Jesus and the church was primarily about stimulating my personal purity and, and um, piety. Uh, but one day, a single line in a book we were studying in Sunday school hit me. When you were redeemed to Christ, you were redeemed to his people. The two things go hand in hand. As I began to be, dig deeper, I began to realize if you want to be a part of God's program, if you want to glorify God and his purpose, if you want to enjoy God by reveling in the things God revels in, you're going to have to be about what he's about, namely the glorification of his name 
through the building up of the church, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the word and spirit. That's what he's about. That's what I want to be about. Which, for an introverted, even shy personality whose teenage plans for adulthood were to live as a hermit shepherding sheep in the mountains and then matured to living in a wood shop by himself in the mountains, uh, for a personality for whom relationships have always been difficult, for a personality that is independent and who has a low tolerance for boredom, who would rather be fishing than in a classroom or a sanctuary, What an odd and radical shift in thought. And it continues to be as I'm still trying to figure that out. Why do I share this part of my testimony with you? Because I believe if we want to follow the advice of Barnabas from Acts 11.24, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose then our telos must be God's telos. Our purpose must be God's purpose. We must love what God loves. Namely, we must love the glorification of his name through the collection of a particular people in Christ from all over the globe to the praise of his glorious grace. All the other things, the important things, We can throw ourselves into our subservient to that great purpose, that overarching purpose of God. One institution will pass from this life to the next. The governments of this world will not survive the destruction of this world. Our marriages will not carry over into the next world. Even our families, only those members of our families who are members of God's family will go with us. To the next world. Our earthly employ is also temporary. It's all temporary. There's one institution that will carry from this to the next. It's the church. And far from minimizing those important temporal realities, a clear focus on the, 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 the abiding institution of the church places those things in their proper context and actually gives them meaning. I was telling a friend last night where he, he's coming to understand covenant theology. He said, sometimes I feel like that wacky guy in the, the bear apartment who has like one lawn chair and a wall with all the pictures and yarn going to each picture and it all connects. I just, that's how I feel sometimes um, that I, I'm that crazy guy. But it does all connect. It all fits together. For good or for ill, uh, it all fits together. It all converges. All, all those strands of yarn converge on the blood of Jesus Christ, saving a particular people for his name and bringing them into everlasting Trinitarian fellowship. That, I believe, is where the lines converge in Scripture. So in this text, despite the best efforts of the Judaizing heretics to to move the goalposts, um, Jesus welcomes the Gentiles with open arms into his family. And we're reminded that as we enter into into fellowship with the one shepherd of the sheep, we likewise enter into one sheepfold. The assembly of all the saints from Genesis to the end of the world uh, by, by, by the blood of Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. 
So today we'll actually just look at the first half of James's speech in response to the Judaizing heresy. And we'll see this principle of a single people brought near in Christ, not by ethnicity, not by uh, dietary laws, not by circumcision, not by works of the law, but by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is the wisdom of the apostles and the elders as they deliberate over this question of whether Gentile converts need to be circumcised in order to be saved. As they deliberate, uh, they seem to be founding their decision on the principle, kind of the historic Jewish principle of two or three or more witnesses. They're bringing forward witnesses on which to base their decision. Uh, I see four Peter, Peter's witness, the Holy Spirit, it's a good witness, Paul and Barnabas, and the Scriptures. First witness, Peter, recall from last time, he testified to his own experience among the Gentiles with Cornelius, in which God himself also testified by sending the Spirit upon the Gentiles uh, without circumcision, The second witness we have here, Paul and Barnabas, contribute their own testimony in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Once again, God himself, chief witness throughout the proceedings, is an affirming witness working through signs and wonders. So the Holy Spirit is the third witness. Witness And the fourth witness is Scripture. We can testify all we want to the apparent working of, of the Holy Spirit, but if it doesn't align with Scripture, then the case falls. That, that's kind of the liberal mindset, is the, whole, the Holy Spirit is doing a new thing in our day. Look at all these experiences that... The Holy Spirit is providing. Look at how he's working in this event. That's great. Experiences are great if it aligns with Scripture. And that's the problem. But having heard all that has been said, James here, half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the epistle, um, grounds his whole case in the most clear and important witness of all, and that is Scripture. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with uh, this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. So before we look at that passage that he quotes from, I kind of want to linger on James's description of the salvation of the Gentiles. Um, And it's extraordinary description. I love this description in verse 14. He says, Simeon, who who, Simeon is Peter, who goes by many names in the New Testament. Simon, Simon, Peter, Simeon, Peter, uh, Cephas. Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So we can't comment too many times on the way. Um, that Luke and the apostles and the elders emphasize God's sovereignty, God's action in salvation. It says God first visited the Gentiles. God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. 
God is mighty and powerful. And sometimes we naturally associate sovereignty and strength with aloofness, right? Because in our experience, a person with a lot of power oftentimes is aloof. And we appreciate a leader who is uh, down to earth, right? Somebody who will get in the trenches with his troops. Someone who's relatable, willing to get his hands dirty. God is not just a king on a jewel-encrusted throne. You know, kiss my rings, you paupers. Right? He, he gets down and he gets into the trenches with us. He takes action. He takes initiative. When he wants to save, he saves. When he wants to create a people for his own glory, he creates a people. Even as he spoke creation into existence and breathed breath into the life of man, he breathes spiritual life into fallen man and creates a holy nation by divine fiat. So God is, is transcendent, but also imminent. Far from being the watchmaker who creates his intricate masterpiece and winds it up and watches it tick down from a distance, he's a God who actively energizes every subatomic particle in his watch so that it exists and ticks. Westminster Confession, or Shorter Catechism 11, asks, what are God's works of providence? Answers, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. So it was God who acted to save the Gentiles. It was God who got Peter off the roof of his home and sent him to Cornelius' home. It was God who inspired the church at Antioch to, to have a missionary uh, sending impetus. It was God who called and energized Paul, the persecutor of the church, to go and preach the gospel. It was God who brought people to saving faith. It was God who brought the gospel to our own ears and brought us to saving faith. So it's, it's all of God. It's all God's work, which means we can sit back and watch him work, right? Let go and let God, like Paul who sat and watched, who didn't sail and hike thousands and thousands of miles, who didn't preach the gospel, who didn't get stoned, who didn't appoint elders, who just went and sat in his house in Tarsus and thought highly of God's sovereignty. No, it's a ridiculous accusation that a high view of the sovereignty of God in salvation removes the necessity for prayer and evangelism. I steal a, a list, a non-comprehensive list of Calvinistic evangelists and missionaries from uh, Jason Halopoulos, <coughs> just to name a few. John Calvin, John Eliot, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, William Tennant, Samuel Davies, William Carey, Robert Moffat, David Livingston, Robert Morrison, Peter Parker, Adoniram Judson, Charles Simeon, Henry Martin, Samuel Zwimmer, John Stott, Francis Schaeffer, D. James Kennedy. The list is large. We believe in putting our faith into action, in evangelism and prayer. 
God has worked through secondary means throughout Acts. Which of the peoples in Judea or Samaria or Cyprus or Asia Minor did God to bring to salvation without the preaching of the gospel? Where's the record of the man in the field who just drops to his knees, crying out in sorrow for his sins and calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, having never heard the gospel preached once? Where's the record of that man? Blessed is the God who chooses to bring us near. That's the psalm we prayed this morning before. To, To claim a people for himself, to bring into his courts... And what a special privilege to be called to serve God's purposes in this world. To get to serve an active God, a God who involves himself in the action. Who will never fail a single time, who will always accomplish that which he intends to do. So it says, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. God did this. Now let's take a description, uh, this description of salvation. To take from them a people for his name. To take from them a people for his name. Um, teaching at the school, <coughs> devotions in Greek, I'm always trying to get the kids to um, think carefully about words, detail about words. Words are important, words, words are beautiful. They convey meaning. Every word matters. And the smallest word in this phrase is perhaps the most powerful. God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. I think our inclination as American uh, individualists is to think God took some people for his name. He decided to come to you and to you and to you and to me to have a relationship with you and you and you and me. And to be sure, he did do that. He cares about each one of us. He cares about us as individuals. But when he did that, he gathered us, he united us together into a single family, a single body, a single temple, a single sheepfold under a single shepherd. That's why he says in Titus 2, 13 through 14, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. And in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That language comes from the Old Testament. It it applied to Old Testament Israel, and here it's being applied to the church few example passages from the Old Testament, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 14.2, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God first visited the Gentiles, it says, to take from them a people for his name. God is saving souls in order to make a people, a nation, a kingdom. And it's ultimately for his own name's sake. As much as he delights to do good uh, for us, to, to give us joy in himself and his presence, his chief and highest motivation is his own glory, his, the renown of his own name. For him to do anything other would be idolatry. One thing I love about the creeds is they draw us together as the family of God um, from all over the world, from all history into all future. Every person who recites the creeds is reciting it together. We could recite the earliest of creeds. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, he is one. Uniting us with the church from uh, of, of Israel. So by way of reminder, if you want to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. Just seeing here this passage, the power of the gospel uniting both Jew and Gentile into one family of God. And I think we need to keep that in mind, especially I think as we engage with our dispensational brothers and sisters, that though though we love them, uh, it is a serious error to split those two into two peoples of God. This is one people of God. Ephesians 2:11 through 22 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access into one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That we could be called members of the household of God here is amazing. Um, not two peoples, not, not two separate distinct peoples, but one people composed of all the saints who will stand before the throne of God and sing praises in, in glory. Um, that, that's a privilege. That's a privilege of pure unmerited favor that we get to be counted among that group. And just to think, however small, however feeble our efforts, even as we gather here today in, the, in this little room and try our best to make it through some hymns, we are joining in a foretaste of heaven. Because we have been taken as a people for his name. All of this we see is the outworking of God's eternal purpose and plan in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this this whole Gentile thing is not plan B for God. Uh, uh, shucks, Israel failed again. I guess I'll give these these folks a try. Uh, the, there is no church age parenthesis in the plan of God. This has been the plan all along, even as he promised Abraham that he would bless the nations. So James says in 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Um, so he says the words of the prophets agree. The words of the prophets here specifically is Amos 9, 11 and 12, which is a promise to restore the people of God and who are in exile. And the, the quotation is a little different than what it would be in our uh, Amos if we were to look it up, because it's mostly from the Septuagint with also some sort of other prophetic allusions peppered in, which is why he says, as the prophets agree. Uh, one of my favorite things is exegesis. It's like solving a puzzle, and when you unsolve it, you sort of unlock this message from the Holy Spirit. It's an exciting process. And one of my favorite exegetical puzzles is when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And I will tell you, this particular puzzle is particularly puzzling. I don't have it all sorted, and in fact, I plan to puzzle on it more this week and explore it more next week in connection with the uh, four prohibitions that they give to the Gentiles. But for the time being, I just want to make a few simple observations. And again, the first one is that God is the primary actor here. He says, I will rebuild the tent of David. So it's, it's God's initiative. Second simple op- observation is this is messianic. Verse 16 about the return of the tent of David is messianic. Commentators are agreed as, a well, as well as a number of intertestamental uh, interpretations of Amos 9. It's, it's clearly meant to be messianic. David's tent or tabernacle will be restored. It's about Jesus. It's about the restoration of, of the end times people of God. Jesus is the eschatological son of David. 
He is the eschatological Israel. He's the tabernacle. He's the temple. Third observation is that the Gentiles are a part of this end time people of God. In fact, we can go further than that. Verse 17 is a purpose clause that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. The purpose for the restoration of David's tent is the bringing in of the Gentiles, which is striking considering I think the most natural Jewish interpretation of verse 16, uh, just reading the verse by itself, would be that God would restore the fortunes of Israel, that he would restore the Davidic dynasty, that he would restore national ethnic Israel. And yet, James interprets it as being fulfilled now and explicitly in the context, the purpose clause in 17 connects the restoration of the tabernacle of David with the remnant of mankind, with the Gentiles who are called by the name of the Lord. And then the fourth observation is that God is intentional in his plan and purpose. This is a planned, purposeful event prophesied by the prophets, by Amos, and fulfilled in Christ. Um, in a possible allusion to Isaiah 45, James concludes the quotation by adding, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. <coughs> Isaiah 45 is another passage that speaks of the incoming of the Gentiles. And here God says in verses 21 through 23, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's, that's God's program. More than any other on the face of this planet, his agenda is to gather to himself a people for his name. All of history centers around redemptive history. That's the point of why we're here. That's why I'm passionate about the church. That's why I'm here. That's why I care about the church in, in forgotten backwater places. That's why I care to be, this may seem like an odd application, but why I care to be a part of a larger group of a denomination. Because this whole thing is bigger than just us, than what we're doing or how we're worshiping or learning or growing or fellowshipping. This is why I believe every Christian ought to order and structure their priorities of their lives with the church life at the center. And why I believe doing so will actually radiate life out into the rest of life. So knowing God's big purpose and plan in the world is so grounding. Because when all else fails and we're baffled about our individual purpose in life, we know for sure what God is doing in our lives. We know this thing is bigger than we are. We, we've been made a part of a people who know God, 
who have been brought into the Trinitarian fellowship by the blood of Christ. And whatever we suffer, we'll never be cast from the family of God. Our purpose in this world is clear and is as far from null and void whenever anything else becomes confusing. I could end there, uh, but I can't let the opportunity to pa- pass to, to let the Holy Spirit have the last word on this. This is the most powerful passage, I think, on this topic. Ephesians 3, um, and I'll just read that from verses 7 through 21, if you'd like to turn there. <coughs> Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.